This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Wednesday show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, uh, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering Bible questions, life questions, anything and everything that's on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions. I've had some really good questions sent in in the last couple of days by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of your screen and everything else will be hands-free and you will be safe to call. Main number one more time is 340-9585. Remember, today is Wednesday. That means tomorrow is Paula's Day on the show, the day-to-day edition of the program. She will be here, ladies, especially we have her here for you. If you need any encouragement or have any questions, you can call tomorrow. Uh, Also tonight, uh, I have the privilege of teaching one of the most remarkable chapters, I think, in all of Scripture, Genesis chapter 16, and there's really good news. It's a bad situation, but there's really good news for people like you and people like me. So that's tonight. Uh, If you can't join us live, as most of you certainly cannot, uh, you can watch it at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock, Genesis chapter 16. Well, let me get to questions that were sent in, and uh, we'll wait for your phone calls. I have a follow-up from Leona, uh, who said, uh, it's Leona again. This is from a question we had yesterday. She says, so many are confused, like some Christian or some churches teach, uh, and the people truly believe about being baptized, about being saved by being baptized, even giving scripture that happens to support it, or that appears to support it, I'm sorry. Can you elaborate it on a little bit more about the scripture they use, uh, which I can't remember what that is, but it almost sounds like it does support it. Thank you for your time. Many blessings. Leona, thanks very much for the follow-up. I want always to be clear when I'm teaching. Leona, the, the... Scriptures that they use uh, in most cases uh, is going to be uh, these two scriptures. Uh, Mark chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 14. Now, I personally believe 
that these scriptures belong. This is a disputed portion of scripture. Whether it belongs or doesn't belong in the scripture is not the point. Uh, there is nothing at all in these scriptures that contradicts anything else. And verse 14 says, Later Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. This is verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Verse 16 is one of the strong verses that you say, see, you have to be believe and be baptized. But uh, that flies... I'm sorry, I had to cough. That flies in the face of, of other scriptures that make it clear that salvation is by grace through faith. All we have to do is believe, confess in our heart, believe in our heart, and we're saved. So when we say go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. The baptism, especially in that Jewish culture, remember the early church was entirely Jewish, especially in that early culture, the idea there is that baptism was a public declaration of their faith in Jesus Christ. They were being born again, leaving Judaism and coming into Christianity. And being baptized was simply saying, I declare publicly this is who I am. Now, remember, that when you're born again and you make that faith, we're remembering what Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. He was giving them the opportunity for a whole new life. But there's no way that the construct of the Greek here says you have to believe and be baptized to be saved. Remember, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. There's another one in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Again, we have to understand the very, very Jewish context of this. This is the um, first sermon in the church um, when it comes to, uh, as it relates to um, the day of Pentecost Peter replied they asked what shall we do Peter replied repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit now the idea here and this is a little bit more clear in the Greek um, we repent that's the turnaround repent I've often said is the first word of the gospel but, but that's the action we take, and then because we are saved, we get baptized. We don't get baptized to get saved. We get baptized. It's an act of obedience. Acts 5.32 says that God gives, you the Holy, gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him, and that's when he says, uh, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the act of being baptized is an act of obedience following Baptism or following conversion. Now, let me give you one other verse. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, a church that he spent a year and a half in. He was their pastor, the founding pastor. They knew him, and he knew them. And as he starts this first letter to the Corinthians, it's, it's a, 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 a scolding letter. They're, they're doing everything out of control. They're in their flesh. Um, Paul calls them brothers. These aren't unbelievers. These are believers. 
and he's getting reports of all of the things that are out of control. And one of the things they're doing is taking sides. Some say I'm of Apollos, others say I'm of Paul, others say I'm of Peter, others say I'm of Christ. And in this argument, he's saying, and this is verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 1, I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. And then sort of as an afterthought, he says, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Here's the key verse, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then he goes on. He didn't send him to be baptized. If baptized was necessary in order to be saved, Leona, well, clearly the problem that we would have is that Paul would be baptizing everybody. But again, we're, we're saved by grace through faith, and that the faith, not of ourselves, it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. So baptism is an appropriate response. Baptism is important. One of the two sacraments of the church, communion being the other. And we are clearly instructed to practice baptism. So those of us who take the biblical position that you don't have to be baptized in order to get saved, we're not saying that baptism isn't important. What we're saying is that, that, that baptism is an act of obedience which will be followed by the outpouring of God's Spirit. But remember, when we are converted, we have the Spirit of God living in us. So, Leon, I hope that answers your questions. Thank you very, very much. Don't get caught up in the you have to be baptized to be saved camp. Baptism is an act of obedience, a wonderful, loving act of obedience. I've told the story before, Leona, but um, when it came time for me to be baptized, I mean, I'm a brand new believer. Um, I hadn't been baptized maybe uh, it was a month after I'd been saved. And I just knew I needed to be baptized, and I was trying to think, because we didn't have a, a church that we belonged to yet at that point, just being new believers, at least I was. And I remember, um, just in prayer one day, I was, I've always been taking these long walks with the Lord, and I remember saying, well, Lord, I need to be baptized. Where should I go to be baptized? And he made it clear to me that, that there's only one person who should baptize me, and that was Paula. She's the one who prayed for me for 13 years. She's the one who stood firm when everybody else, including my mom, was telling her to leave me. She was the one who, because she loved Jesus, did what he wanted her to do instead of what the world wanted her to do. And by the way, it's what she wanted to do as well. Her life would have been so much easier had she divorced me. And we went to a pool at a gym, an outdoor pool, and with all the people out there uh, watching, we weren't drawing attention to ourselves, but they couldn't help but to notice um, Paula baptized me, and it was one of the great moments of my life, and I trust it was also one of hers. Here is a question from Richard. He said, why, do is it, why does it seem that churches don't allow dissenting views on some issues and don't believe in the concept of contributions from many? Well, Richard, the church is set up, and you can look at this, 
uh, in Romans uh, chapter 12. You can look at this in in Ephesians chapter 4. The, the, the purpose of teaching the Word, the purpose of the pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And, um, you know, the people who are listening to the Bible being taught, we don't want to confuse them. And there's always people in a church that seem like they've got all the right answers or, well, I disagree with him on this. I believe this is to be true. And those people are sowing discord. You call them dissenting views. It's okay to have your own views. It's just not okay to spill those views on other people. Um, Our church, as an example, here at Calvary Chapel, uh, I, I don't want somebody to, to have a public platform to say, well, you know, Pastor Ron is wrong about the rapture. Pastor Ron is wrong about Calvinism. Or Pastor Ron is wrong about this. That's simply um, stirring discord in the body. And I always tell people, Richard, who want their views to be made public, I tell them to go start their own church. Now, they don't want to do that because that's really hard. Now, we get contributions from many in the form of their spiritual gifts, the calling that God has in their lives. God is like the master weaver behind the scenes, putting all the people and the places together and the opportunities to use the gifts that he's given us. And and I always imagine God like a, a conductor. You know, if you've ever been into an orchestra when they're warming up, it just sounds horrible. But when the conductor comes out and he raises that baton, and he begins to move it, and everybody plays in unison. It makes this magnificent music. Well, that's the way the body of Christ, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so? So frankly, Richard, I'm one of those guys who doesn't want dissenting views. I don't know why we so value dissent uh, among Christians, but we need to be walking together. And the beauty of the church, the way God has constructed it, is that there are so many people who have the choice of all kinds of different churches, and your job is to go find one, rather than sow discord in a church that, that, that believes differently than you do. Go find a church that lines up with your views, and then give your whole self, your whole heart, to that body of believers serving them. And if You'll do that, then God will be able to use you. But, um, boy, it just sounds like a question, and I'm not judging you, Richard, because I don't know, but it sounds like a question that comes from pride. Well, why why doesn't everybody get to, to share? And the truth is, God's appointed some to be pastors, and by the way, he calls pastors his gift to the church. So if you don't like your pastor, go find the church with the pastor that you can agree with, a pastor that you can walk with. But the one thing that we've got to realize, this isn't a social poll. We're, we're so invested in letting everybody know our opinion about things. Uh, a church is a body of believers that are given a mission from God and we're to walk together on that mission. Richard, I hope that makes sense to you. Oliver says, my question is about Matthew 11. What did he mean, what did Jesus mean when he said John the Baptist was Elijah to come if they can accept it? Well, Jews knew that before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Elijah would come. He's one of the two witnesses uh, in the book of Revelation, Moses being the other. Uh, Moses representing the law, Elijah the prince of prophets representing the prophets. Jesus said the law and the prophets testified of me. 
And that's exactly what they're going to do uh, in the book of Revelation. They're going to be at the Western Wall, um, uh, and they're going to do miraculous things. People are going to come against them and try to kill them. And and um, um, they did it because of the Old Testament prophecy that Elijah must come. Before that great and dreadful day, Elijah must come. Well, what Jesus was saying in Matthew 11 is that just as Elijah will be a forerunner to the Lord's second coming, John the Baptist was the forerunner to his first coming. John the Baptist was the Word of God. Remember, in in John the Baptist's ministry, he just kind of shows up. He's a voice crying out in the wilderness. And John, um, supernaturally, I mean, filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, um, John had a message Now remember that Israel hadn't heard from God in more than 400 years. And there were a lot of people who believed that God had failed them, that he wasn't going to keep his promises for 400 years of silence. And suddenly the word would begin to spread throughout all of Israel. That down at the Jordan River there was a man who was a prophet of God and God was speaking again to the people. And when the Bible says the whole countryside went out to see him, that's not hyperbole. The whole countryside went out because everyone is excited that God was speaking. Now, they didn't like what John had to say, but they knew that he was sent from God. That's what the, the people believed. The religious leaders who hated him, um, who, who, who wanted to get rid of him, they all knew that God was speaking through him. They just didn't want to hear so just as Elijah will be the forerunner to the second coming of Christ, John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus' first advent to earth. So what he's saying is John the Baptist isn't really Elijah in the flesh, but he is fulfilling the office of, and that's what Jesus meant when he said, if you can accept it. So that's what he was doing. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Let's go to Ray calling from San Antonio on line one. Ray, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Excuse me. Um, let's go way back to Genesis one. <laughs> In the beginning, God. And I was puzzled by that for quite some time, as far as the first day, the second day, all the way through to the the day of rest. And it seemed, I just don't know why is it put the way it is that the evening and the morning seem to be transposed in our way of thinking nowadays. And it wasn't, it wasn't because they were Jews, I think, because that was before Jews or Gentiles or any of it. So can you just shed a little light on on the way that is presented to us? Yeah, <laughs> I can. I can, Ray. Thank, Thank you. you for thanks for calling. Um, a couple things. In the beginning, God, you know, Pastor Chuck used to say, if you can believe those four words, the rest of the Bible is easy, and it really is. In the beginning, God. Now, why God went to the detail of the evening and the morning? Now, people say, well, well, that was before Jews. But remember, uh, it was Jews who wrote this. Moses wrote this book, the book of Genesis. And the Jewish day began at sunset. We would call it dusk. Uh, tonight at, at, uh, at 
seven thirty, eight o'clock, whenever the sun goes down, that would be when the Jewish day began. So uh, the first hour uh, would be that 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 first hour. We have a tendency to always think of morning as when things start. That's completely opposite. Now, there's the detail here. Um, God called the night, the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Uh, and, and, you know, obviously God knew that there were going to be all kinds of different ideas and concepts about um, how many years, uh, how old the earth is, all these things. Was it six literal days or was it day ages? All of the questions that come up in this. And uh, to my mind, Ray, the Holy Spirit is going out of his way in all seven days of creation to repeat over and over. It's as though he's saying, okay, I want this to be clear. These are literal 24-hour days. There's the first 12 hours, we'll call that evening, and the second 12 hours, we'll call that day. And then the same thing occurs repeatedly. So this is just the Holy Spirit going out of his way to say, these are 24-hour days. Now, there's all kinds of different views, and, and the, some of those views are by men who are way, way smarter than I am. But, you see, the one thing I do know is the Bible. And this is the Holy Spirit making it as easy as he possibly can for us to understand that God made everything. He did it in six literal 24-hour days, not day ages, not gap theories. Uh, it's very important. I think important, not for salvation necessarily, but it's very important for a fruitful walk with the Lord to take this literal. I've got a question. I probably won't get to it today, but it's about how literal are we to take Genesis. And, and we're to take it literal whenever we can. Whenever we can, there are things that are clearly symbolic. Now, not so much in Genesis as in other books. You know, the trees of the field clap their hands. We know that's symbolic. We know that we don't take that literal because trees don't really have hands. The breath of his nostrils. Well, God the Father is a spirit. So he doesn't have a nose. He doesn't have nostrils. So that is also symbolic. We're, to, we're, we're unable to take that literally. But when you see there was morning... And evening the first day, there was morning and evening the second day, and all the way to the, the sixth day. And uh, it just doesn't make sense, Ray, to read it any other way at all. So that's why he's doing it. Now, one other thought. You know, we get the general um, creation story in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we're not getting another creation story. We're getting some details filled in on each of those days. And so if you read chapter 1 and chapter 2 together, you're going to get a complete picture of what those first six days of creation were. And then, of course, the seventh day was a day of rest, and uh, obviously God didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was finished. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. God was done. Well, in the same way, we who believe in Christ, we're done. There's nothing else to add. There's nothing else we have to do. We can finally rest in Christ because our sins have been paid for. They've been atoned for. And when he cried out from the cross, it is finished. Tetelestai is the Greek word. It means the debt has been paid. It's been paid in full. And that's the only thing, Ray, that we need to remember is that that we can rest from trying to please God. 
we can rest from 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 trying to fulfill the, the requirements of the law. We can rest in Christ. And when we can learn to rest, we can get away from this sense of, i got to do something. Well, that's when we, for the first time, will be able to kind of sit back, take that deep breath, and say, Jesus, my salvation depends on you, not on me. He who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. Even when I am faithless, he is faithful. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And what he wants us to do is to rest in that. Let me add one thing, Ray, that is tangentially connected. The other thing God wants us to rest in is in the security of our salvation. He wants us to know that we're his. John writes, First John, he says, we write these things that you may know, not hope, not guess, but that you may know that we are in Christ. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to to, to be in his hands and realize that we're so secure there because no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hands. And then he says, the Father is greater than I. He has you in his hands and no one can snatch you out of the Father's hands. And what he wants us to do is rest in the finished work of Christ. He wants us to rest in his role as mediator or great high priest, ever living to make intercession for us. And Ray, when we'll do that, we go back to Genesis 1-1 and just say, you know what, Lord, you did all the work. And you said it was good. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. It's the Wednesday edition, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back on the other side of the break. See you in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We've got 30 minutes left. Reminder, tonight at 7 o'clock, I'm going to be teaching Genesis chapter 16. Truly a remarkable, remarkable chapter in our scripture with a lot of good news for people like you and people like me. Here's our first question for this half of the program. It's from Mick. And he says, There were children who perished in the flood, kids of all ages, infants to teens. When someone uses that as an example for the argument that babies and young kids, regardless of age of accountability, do not get a free ticket to heaven because they did not get a free ticket on the ark and were not spared from judgment. Only the eight who were righteous were spared. What is the correct response? That same person might also use the examples of any time in the Old Testament that a whole people were taken out and in parentheses, right, Jericho, the Amalekites, and the instructions specifically uh, include to take out everyone, both young and old, child and infant. Um, Daniel, um, 
we we get questions like this all the time. You know, well, God committed infanticide. God committed genocide. Um, how could he kill men, women, and children in in the Canaanite campaign? Um, um, and you're right. In the flood, everybody. Now remember, the Bible says that the whole world was given over to evil in the time of the flood. It's, it's an amazing thing. I, I one of my heroes, biblically, Mick is is Enoch, because Enoch was all alone for sixty five years of his life. He was like everyone else, but for the next three hundred years, he alone walked with God, and then God took him. So you're right, there were men, women, and children who perished in the flood. Now, here's the important thing to understand. that Every time we, we consider a question like this, we've got to look at the character of God, the nature of God, and we've got to always view it from the lens of grace. Every one of those kids who died in the flood, the same thing is true in the Canaanite campaign, every one of those children who died before they were accountable for their sins... Well, they would go to heaven. God was extending mercy, was extending grace even then. Now, would they have grown up to be just like their parents and accountable and perish and spend eternity in hell? Certainly they would have. But you see, God only punishes people or judges people for what they're guilty of. And people who die before the age of accountability, this is just God's mercy. You remember in Jonah chapter 4, um, um, Jonah's angry because God is going to save the Ninevites and God basically told him, look, what if what is it to you? I have 120,000 in Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, you got kids there and they're going to grow up and they're going to be allowed to grow up and serve the Lord. Now you remember, after Jonah, the people in Nineveh truly repented and for about 80 years the people in Nineveh served the Lord and then the what always happens, they forgot God and went back to their old ways and the city would eventually be punished. There's no Nineveh today. So, um, clearly God was being merciful. And we always have to know that's part of his character. God is abounding in love. God is slow to anger. God wants people to be saved. He doesn't want to judge people. Isaiah 28 says that judgment is a strange work for God. So, Mick, here's the answer. Just tell them they were spared from judgment both here and in eternity. We also know for sure that when David's son, who was born as a result of his sin with Bathsheba, when that son died, David stopped grieving. He uh, hadn't washed, he hadn't eaten anything. Uh, and then when he, he discovered that his son was dead and all of his servants were afraid to tell him, he said that the, the child has died. And they were confused. Well, well, you were so sad when you thought there was still hope, but now that you know he's dead, you're, you're, you're going back to, to business as usual. And David said, I know my son cannot come to me, but I will go to him. He can't be punished for the sins of David and Bathsheba. In the same way, the kids that perished in the flood, they can't be punished for the sins of their parents. So find mercy. Whenever you're looking to God for an explanation, look to mercy, look to grace. And that's what happens here. So Mick, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very much. 
Anthony says, Pastor Ron, can you explain sanctification so I can understand it? I hope so, Anthony. It's really simple. Uh, sanctification is the process of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's what Paul writes to the church uh, churches in Philippi. We are to work out our salvation, not work for our salvation, but work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And sanctification just means to be holy or to be set apart for God. So, Anthony, what we understand in sanctification, it is a process. It's not something that happens. Justification is what happens when we get saved, just as if we'd never been saved, just as if we'd never sinned. Um, we're going to finish the course because God, the author and the finisher of our faith. But in the meantime, while we're left here on earth, we've got to work out our salvation. And that's what sanctification is. I, I often uh, explain it like this. Every day walking with Jesus trying to be more like him today than you were the day before. That's what sanctification is. The Apostle Paul said that we can follow his example as he followed the example of Christ. Well, we follow the example of Christ. If we follow the example of Paul, then we're going to get to that place where Jesus one day greets us with a smile and says, Welcome, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And that's when the process of sanctification, Anthony, is going to end. When we stand before him and we're just like him, when our sin nature is removed, we will have completed the course. Like the Apostle Paul, we can say, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race. In the meantime, sanctification is actually running the race every day. Getting up in the morning and deciding today, Lord, I'm going to live for you instead of living for me. Today I'm going to say no to me so that I can say yes to you. And as we do that, as we walk with Jesus, Anthony, we're going to be more like him every single day. And we will get more interested in pursuing holiness. We'll become better equipped to say no to the desires of our flesh. We'll be able to keep our things on our, our minds and hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. When Paul writes it to the church at Colossae, um, you know, you set your mind on something, that's a place of decision. It's a decision that we have to make every single day. I'm going to follow you, Jesus, no matter what. We put our hearts on things above. That's the place of affection, Anthony. And that means we've decided what I'm going to do is make sure the things I love are the things that God loves. And as we walk with Jesus every day in that process of sanctification, we're going to find that we're more and more like him every day. You know, I say often that God meets us where we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay there. And that's what the process of sanctification is all about. So I hope that is clear enough. I love the opportunity to talk about sanctification all the time. Here is a question from a nine-year-old Clayton, and he says, how old is the earth? Um, Clayton, nobody knows for sure. I can tell you with certainty it's not millions or billions of years old. Um, I believe that the earth is somewhere between seven and 10,000 years old. Um, I believe in a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, I believe the earth is somewhere between seven and 10,000 years. We can't be uh, precise 
in that. Nobody knows because we don't have all of the pieces of the tables of nations. We don't have all of the pieces of the genealogies uh, without any interruptions. But um, I feel very confident when I tell our church here that I believe it's seven to 10,000 years old. Now, this is important, Clayton, because in school, you're going to hear for the rest of your schooling that the earth is millions or billions of years old. And right now, as a nine-year-old Christian, you get the opportunity to say, you know what, I have a choice to believe the Bible, the Word of God, or to believe what my teachers are telling me. Now, you don't want to argue with your teachers, and that's not my point, but every time I hear somebody really smart on TV, and there's people that I like hearing about. There's, I, I like Jeopardy. Paul and I watch Jeopardy together. And I love the questions, but, but when they ask questions like this, the assumption is they're, they're millions of years old, and I always just say, professing themselves wise, they became fools. So, Clayton, your decision is, do I believe the Bible, written by God? Or do I believe a textbook? Do I believe a teacher who's just giving me an opinion? Remember that every opinion is going to be formed by whether you believe or don't believe. And the people who think the earth is millions or billions of years old are in for a rude shock when they get to heaven, Clayton, because Jesus is going to say, you know, it was pretty easy to trust me. Why didn't you? And they're going to be judged. So, Clayton, I hope that makes sense to you. Seven to 10,000 years old is my best guess, and I'm content with that. 340-9585. Here's a question from Rita. How can we keep our witness when even professing Christians misrepresent God or the truth? Well, Rita, the, the one good thing about our relationship with God is that we're not going to give an answer for what anybody else believes nor the way anyone else lives their lives. You're right. There are so many Christians who uh, misrepresent God every day by the way they live their lives. Yes, I'm a Christian. Then they go out and they get drunk or they're worried about worldly things. To say you're a Christian, you believe in the Lord Jesus, but don't actually treat him as the Lord of your life, that is to misrepresent God, the the, the father and the husband who is loud and, and, and uh, angry at home. That's a man who's misrepresenting God. The person who gossips is misrepresenting God. And when we say we're Christians and we do that... Um, we really need to understand that we're compromising our witness for Jesus Christ. Now, the good thing, again, is that we're not going to stand and answer for what anybody else says or does. Only what we do with what we know matters. So the way you keep your witness with somebody who misrepresents God or somebody who is lying about what is true, the way you keep your witness is for you to live what you believe. You know, I often say to our church Rita, that you don't really believe something unless you live it. You know, you can know stuff, but if what you know doesn't change the decisions you make, doesn't change the way you live your life, then the truth is, you don't really believe it. If I believed, if I really believed there was a bomb in our church that was going to go off at any moment, then I'd get out of here. Um, but if I didn't believe in Sid Haha and then got blown up, well, that would be on me. Well, the same thing is true with the witness that Jesus left us. 
It really is easy to believe. But we choose not to. And we choose not to in large part, in in a very large part, because we don't want to stop sinning. So we just rationalize that God's okay with this and, and, and we pretend. So um, you keep your witness. Don't worry about anybody else's witness. You be like the Apostle Paul and be able to say to people, look, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. You follow me and you're going to find yourself following Jesus because that's where I'm going. You know, Rita, as a pastor, I think that's the most important part of my job. I, 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 I teach the Bible. I pray for people. I love them. But the, the, the thing that everybody has to be able to see is that I'm following Jesus. And then they're on their own. I don't ever want to get to heaven on the, the, the Bema seat of Christ, and I don't want to, to, to hear, well, you know, there were so many days when you just did your thing instead of my thing. I don't want to be a stumbling block for the church here. I, I love these people with all of my heart, and what I want it's for them to be able to see a man committed to Jesus Christ and following him. And if I blow it, I want him to see a man who says, I'm sorry, and actually lives his life and makes changes as though he is sorry. If we'll do that, then we don't have to worry about what anybody else says. Keep your eyes on Jesus, not on the lives of other people. Missy says, can you slowly explain exactly what's going to happen in the rapture. It sounds scary when I hear people talk about it. You know, Missy, before I I, I kind of go through the sequence of things that's going to happen, I so empathize with your question. You know, when I got saved and and, uh, I was going to church and there were these men in my life, two of them in particular, and one day, they called me and said, we're going to take you to breakfast. Now, I was so broke back then that anybody could buy me breakfast. I was, I was for it. But we, we want to talk to you about something in the Bible. And so um, I got there to a restaurant uh, in Upland, California, and they opened the Bibles and, and said, we're going to tell you about the rapture. Now, I'd never even heard. Remember, I didn't grow up in church. I'd never opened a Bible until I got saved at almost 40 years of age. And I remember them sitting there telling me, well, you know... If the rapture would happen right now, you see all these people in the restaurant? Well, some of them would be left behind and go into the Great Tribulation, but others would be gone. You know, just your clothes. And I remember very specifically saying, you know those clothes you're wearing, Ron? They would they would be left behind and just sitting in the chair. Your food would be just left. Your clothing would be left, and you'd go to be with Jesus. And honestly, Missy, I thought it was the strangest thing. I thought it was like the twilight zone. And so what I wanted to do is find out for myself about the rapture. Here's what's going to happen. At any moment now, Missy, at any moment, the trumpet call of God, it's not a literal trumpet. Revelation is a book of symbols. Um, the, The trumpet is a call to readiness. It would be a battle trumpet. It's a call to readiness. And we're going to hear that trumpet. And in an, in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, I like to say a nanosecond, we're going to be caught up to be with Jesus in the air. He's not coming here for us. He's calling us up to him. John chapter 14, he gives a hint of this. When he's talking to his disciples, he tells them, he, he looks at their troubled faces. He goes, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. 
in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. And then he says, look, if this weren't true, I wouldn't have told you. So in that instant, we're going to be called up to be with Jesus. We're going to meet him in the air. And then we're going to go with him for our wedding supper when we're married to Jesus. So that's what's going to happen. Now, people who are left behind, Missy, are going to be plunged into the Great Tribulation, a time described as the time of Jacob's distress, a time so awful that there's been none like it before. There will be none like it after. It's going to be a seven-year period of time where especially the second three and a half years of that seven years It's going to be a world filled with so much carnage that we can't even begin to imagine it. Now, the good news is there's going to be a great, uh, the greatest by far revival in the history of the world. People who won't take the mark of the beast, people who will recognize that this is a judgment of God, and people who will believe. Now, all of them, most of them, are going to give their lives for their faith in Jesus Christ. They will be martyred. You find them under the altar in the book of Revelation, crying out, how long, O God, until you avenge our death? Just a little while longer. It's waiting for the judgments to be complete. But that's what's going to happen in the rapture. And, Missy, the best thing is it can happen at any moment. So that's what's going to happen. We're going to exchange these wearing out bodies for glorified physical resurrected bodies just like Jesus' body. You know the great thing about Jesus' body in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven when he was teaching his disciples. Um, He wasn't constrained by time and space. He could eat. I think we're going to be able to eat when we get to heaven. The food is going to be wonderful. We're not going to gain weight or have to worry about cholesterol or any of that other stuff. Jesus could eat, but at the same time he didn't need to. I like that. He could materialize right through a wall when the disciples were hidden in the upper room for fear of the Jews. Jesus just walked in and said, Hi guys, peace. And we're going to have a body like that. The only difference between our body and his body is that his body will still bear the wounds of his torture on our behalf. So that's what's going to happen in the rapture and it's going to happen in an instant. No warning. It will be sudden, so sudden that there'll be no opportunity to change your mind and the people left behind are going to be plunged into the worst time in the history of the world that we live in. So, Missy, I hope that answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Um, Juan says, Our altar calls and sinners' prayers biblical. Um, One, you can't go to a book and, and, and be instructed how to do an altar call or exactly what prayer somebody should pray to be saved. Um, but they're not unbiblical. They're not anti-Bible. Uh, an altar call, an invitation, and the, the Bible from cover to cover is inviting us to come and, and, and experience Jesus, to taste and see that the Lord is good. So the altar call, the invitation... Um, Joshua is for me and my house we will serve the Lord but he tells them choose this day who will serve again Jesus says 
that if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. So that's really what we do uh, with an altar call. We're giving people a chance to publicly declare their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the sinner's prayer uh, is often just misunderstood. Uh, I, I don't know who came up with the title for the sinner's prayer. We're all sinners. But uh, the prayer, the key to the gospel is just, Lord, here I am a sinner. Forgive me. Come into my heart. I give you control of my life. That's the only prayer a sinner needs to pray. And every sinner converting to Christ needs to make that profession of faith. I believe. I don't deserve it. But I believe and I receive it. And now I'm yours. So neither of those things are bad things. In fact, I think they are good things. I give invitations, one, every time I teach. It doesn't matter whether it's here in somebody else's church. Uh, I have actually been asked, I ask pastors when I'm invited to speak at other churches, um, uh, I always give invitations, is that okay with you? And I've had one pastor who said, no, I don't, we don't do that here. Um, and I honored him because I was a guest in his church. But every other time that um, um, I, I have a, any kind of an audience, and I'm in a pulpit, there's going to be an invitation, and people respond. And one of the great things about um, uh, that one is that when people know I'm going to give an invitation, then they invite people to church knowing that they're going to get the opportunity, they're going to get the opportunity to be saved that day when they come. And I think that's important. It also, I've learned, uh, as I do it, it instructs the people in our church how to do it when they're out sharing. We have a really active church in terms of sharing our faith, um, whether it's family, friends, neighbors, or co-workers, or just strangers. We've got a lot of people that, that thrive on sharing their faith, and uh, they learn sometimes how to do it by listening to me. So, one, I hope that helps. Last question. I can do it in two minutes and less than two minutes that we got left. This is from Ron. He says, I listened to a pastor online who said he believed Jesus forgave Judas. Is that true or not? Um, Ron, it is not true. Jesus himself said that it would be better for Judas had he never been born. The deepest, darkest blackness is reserved for him. He was a son of perdition from the beginning. So Judas was a pretender. He looked to the world. He looked even to the other 11 disciples who had become apostles. He looked to them like he was the real one. They, 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 when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't all point to Judas and say, we knew there was something funny about you. What they said was, Lord, is it I? But Judas, with all of the opportunities he had to repent, he did not. And when the devil entered him, his fate for eternity was sealed forever and ever. That's our questions for today. We're coming to the end of the show. Remember, tonight I'm going to be teaching in Genesis chapter 16. I know I said this three times already, but it's a truly remarkable chapter. It really is. And then tomorrow, Paula will be live on the program on the date day edition of the show. Uh, we would love your calls and questions. I know she's uh, excited about being here with you again, so we'll see you then. 
Hey, appreciate you tuning in. This has been the Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.